Anyone in here grow up in an arid climate? Maybe the desert, maybe eastern Washington, California, anybody? Any hands? A few people out there? Uh, it smells different than it smells around here, doesn't it? A little bit, not, not quite the same kind of smell. Uh, definitely it smells different than the jungles of Indonesia where I grew up. My parents were missionaries there and I'm, I'm excited and proud to have them here in church with us today for the first time in a while, so thanks mom and dad. Uh, my mom grew up actually in Escondido, California, which is inland east of San Diego. And as a child, we would visit her family home there every four years or so. And I distinctly remember the smell of their lawn. Uh, it had a really distinct smell. Uh, and the distinct part is because I smelled a whiff of it over in eastern Washington a couple weeks ago on my motorbike trip. But really distinctly, I smelled it in my own yard earlier this week before the rain came. And it blew my mind because my whole life I had thought there was some special grass down in California at, at this ranch where my mom grew up. And I realized this week, it's just the smell of brown, dead grass. <laughs> uh, and, and I don't think I'd smell that any ever up here, right? So we're so grateful for the rain that's here this week. Very grateful for that. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment what it's like to be God. Um, just imagine that you live outside of time, that your memory extends not just from the past, but into the future. And I'm starting to sound a little bit science fiction-y, but imagine that you could have memories of the future. Because right? uh, we're going to look at two weddings today. One that Jesus was invited to, that's what we're going to actually read about. He attended it in human form here in John chapter 2, and another wedding that hasn't happened yet. It's, it's still going to happen someday. And at that wedding, Jesus is going to be the groom. And you and I, us, we get to be the bride. And I wonder if Jesus, like many often single people do at weddings, if he wasn't looking forward with anticipation to his wedding day. I wonder if he couldn't smell that wedding. Uh, that, that's the one that's near the, the very end of this story. Right? It's in the book of Revelation is where it's recorded. Uh, and Jesus today is going to do his very first miracle, his first miracle that's the, at the start of his public ministry here on earth, and he's going to do it at a wedding. And how amazing it is that that will be bookended at the end of time with an incomparably greater, more important better, way longer lasting wedding banquet in the future. That's where we're headed today, so let's pray. Father, we welcome you here with us, and I ask that each of our hearts would be open to hear your voice, to hear what you want to say to us. Like John the Baptist, would each of us pray and what our desire be that you would increase and we would decrease. We pray these things in your name, amen. Paul said in chapter 5 of Ephesians that we should be imitators of God. And Peter said it this way in the context of Jesus' suffering, that Jesus left us an example so that we might follow in his steps. Even John, the author of our book, said it in a different John. First John chapter 2, he said that as Christians, that we should walk in the same way that he, Jesus, walked. 
And of course, Jesus himself said the same thing in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, Don't get it wrong here at the beginning, though. Being a Christian isn't just merely copying Jesus. That's not the point. That actually is impossible. We can't mimic, copy Jesus. Yes, absolutely, Jesus is an example for us. We're going to look at some of that today. But more than that, he's the one who saves us. He must be in charge of us. And I want us to keep that in mind as we start by reading the beginning of John chapter 2. Read along with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested or revealed or showed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Pretty low-key story, right? Nothing life and death. No real danger, nothing terribly dramatic in it. Uh, and maybe the most shocking part on the surface of it, at least, is that Jesus calls his mom woman instead of mother. Uh, some of you might actually even feel a little uncomfortable this morning because the story involves alcohol and a multi-day party. Uh, when I was growing up, the party ended no later than 9 p.m., and that's because that was my dad's bedtime. It didn't matter if it was Friday night or not, 9 p.m., party over. (laughs) To be fair, we extended it sometime. Uh, And for the wine, right? Well, uh, God's standard, God's line that he draws is pretty simple. It's pretty clear. He says, don't get drunk. But he and the other attendees drank a lot of wine. Uh, And all in all, this story doesn't seem like it's that important. But but I want to help you see this morning that it really is. So I want to start by exploring a little background. uh, Help start to grow our understanding of perhaps why this story is important. So first off, let's let's just look at where Jesus has been, what's been going on. And, And at the beginning, we find out that Jesus has been living at home for about 30 years. Uh, He's been living with his mother, Mary, and with his half-siblings. And most likely, we don't know this from Scripture, but most likely his dad, Joseph, had died somewhere during this time. We don't hear of Joseph after the the Christmas story. The other three Gospels, we don't find it here in the book of John, but the other three Gospels all record Jesus being baptized by his cousin John. That's John the Baptist, not the John who's writing this book. And then the other three Gospels also record Jesus then going out into the wilderness right after that for 40 days and enduring great temptation. 
originally, I surprised Kyle with this this morning. That's what he gets for being gone. That was going to be the text for my sermon, Jesus 40 days out in the desert. And, and so actually you get two sermons for the price of one today. Uh, I need my first prop. Forgive me, I'm a second grade teacher. I have a few props with me today. This is, this is for the youth in the Sunday school. Any time one of them sends Sunday school on a rabbit trail, Mr. Haugen gives them these. Yes. Uh, so here it is. Here, here's my other sermon in a nutshell. You ready? Follow Jesus' example of modeling, or pardon me, of resisting, not modeling, resisting temptation. Read, memorize, know, and use God's word. And also pray. <laughs> Meanwhile, we get back to the book of John and the first chapter. Back in that first chapter, Jesus returns from the wilderness and he meets up with John the Baptist again. And John, in that book, recounts the importance of Jesus' baptism. He talks about it. He, he talks about its significance, that Jesus is the, sacrifice, the sacrificial savior of the world. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the son of God. And then, right at the end of chapter one, Jesus calls his first five disciples, starting with Andrew and John. And then Andrew goes out and tells his brother, gets his brother Simon, who Jesus calls Peter. And then the next day in chapter one, Jesus tells Philip to follow him. And Philip goes and gets a guy named Nathaniel, or in some of the other places of scripture, it calls him Bartholomew. Maybe it's his last name. We don't know for sure. So he's got five disciples. And all that leads us back to verse one of chapter two that we just read a few minutes ago. Jesus and these new disciples, really brand new followers of his, go to a wedding. So let's walk through the wedding through this story, and let's flesh out a little bit of what's going on to help us understand the importance of this. First off, we find that the wedding is in a place called Cana. Uh, and Cana, oh, wait for it. It's time for some geography. I told you I have props. Gary, up, that's uh, Ethan's hat that he got down in Texas. And I have a few globes up here that maybe throw at some people who get a little too sleepy out there. Uh, let's, do a little, let's do a little geography. So Cana was, was very close to Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? Who grew up in Nazareth? Jesus. That's the town where he grew up in. And Nazareth was probably about a town of 500 people. Pretty big town for that day. But Cana, a lot smaller. Cana, maybe a few dozen people. A, a small town. And Cana, we find out, was also Nathaniel's hometown. The guy who just followed Jesus. And so Nathaniel, when, he, when Philip comes and first tells him, he's the guy that says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth is the town just down the way. Kind of like how we here in Ferndale look at Linden, or no, no, Bellingham. No, 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 too, too much. Uh, so here come the disciples. And Jesus, we know, is there with his disciples. But Jesus and Mary and Nathaniel, who was from the town, probably knew the bride and the groom and the whole family. Right? It's, a, it's a community event. All, all the town would have been invited. All people from all around. And this was going to be the biggest social event of the year in their little town. It was a big deal. Right? Uh, time for a little cultural history. So uh, 
culture, culture. How do I be a culture nerd? Where's my Petri dish? Oh, that's the wrong kind of culture. For my science friends out there, all right, I, I grew up in a different culture, so I brought a few props from that culture. I, again, I grew up in Indonesia, so if you want to ask some questions about other cultures later, let me know. Uh, what do we know about the culture of that time? All right, so, so we go back and we do a little bit of research, and, and we find out that this, this idea of getting married and the engagement that happens before us, well, well, that one we could actually look at the Christmas story. Anybody remember Mary and Joseph? So wasn't Joseph and Mary engaged to be married when Mary was pregnant with Jesus? So, so we, we find out that in this culture that engagement was actually a legally binding agreement. And it usually lasted for about a year. And the reason they needed a year because the groom, the guy who was engaged, had to actually go prepare for his wedding. He had to perhaps build a home or add a room to his family's home. He had to actually go out and prove that he was responsible enough to marry this woman. And he had a year to make party preparations. He had to get the food prepared. He had to get the wine. He had to get all of those things ready. He had to buy supplies. He had to hire the master of the feast or the master of the banquet, the MC who was going to be in charge of this event. Because again, this is a big deal. This wedding that, again, we learned from history and some culture that often lasted a week. We go on in our story in chapter two and we find out about the wine. So what's the big deal? The, the lack of wine. Why is that such a big deal? Basically, the idea is that they didn't have a good source of clean drinking water back then, and they needed wine to sanitize or to kill the germs in pretty much anything else that they would drink. You and I use alcohol today oftentimes to clean wounds that are dirty or to wipe surfaces, right? And in that day, you needed wine added to water to do the same thing. Again, it was a little like where I grew up in Indonesia, we couldn't drink the water there. You couldn't drink it out of the tap when you had it, and you couldn't drink it out of the streams. Uh, it was filled with nasty things, and we had to, unlike them, we didn't use wine to do it, we boiled our water. It was, this is true, mom and pop, yep. We boiled a lot of water in that day to, to try and stay sanitary, because uh, if you didn't, you were headed for a pretty bad case of Montezuma's Revenge or whatever name you give for it, all right? I'll say diarrhea, right? And in places like Indonesia and ancient Israel, it was a big enough deal that people actually die from it. So this, this was a serious thing. Uh, in addition, the wine would, of course, be more flavorful to drink than just plain water. So back in Indonesia, again, we didn't have a lot of fancy things growing up as a missionary kid, but we did have tang. Uh, uh, some knowing people out there. And... Every once in a while, somebody would come from America and bring Kool-Aid. Oh, oh, yes. And again, either of those was so much better than plain water as a kid. So all of this is a really big problem. If there's no more wine, then people won't have anything to drink. The, the party's basically over. And it's also a big deal because it would be incredibly embarrassing for the for the groom and for his family, that he didn't plan well enough, that they ran out. And again, this celebration that might last as long as a week without wine, it'd be over. Party's over. But Jesus, of 
course, saves the day, well, saves the week. What else is in our story? We hear about some jars, six jars to be exact, and it says that they held 20 to 30 gallons. So time for some math nerd time. Got my calculator here. Uh, so I averaged it to 25 gallons. You can give me a little leeway here. If the 20 to 30 averaged 25, so there's six gallons times 25, 150 gallons. Uh, I went a little farther, though, because I Googled to see how many bottles of wine are in a gallon of wine, and Google said the average is about five bottles. So 150 gallons, five bottles, 750 bottles of wine. Um, I, to be honest, am perfectly out of my element here. I don't drink wine. Um, but my wife, after she visited a family in Greece, came home and, and used to drink a couple of tablespoons of wine each day. Uh, and this amount of wine, 750 bottles, again, I did the math, would last her almost 200 years. <laughs> again, this was a serious big time party, all right? Not just 700, that, but that much more after they had used up the rest of it. Uh, what else is going on? Not only did Jesus save the party from disaster, he also saved probably two teenagers. Again, if we look at Jesus and Mary's example, they were very young. Uh, he saved two teenagers from very public shame. Uh, I, I maybe need to learn a lesson from this, and I apologize to my teenagers even for some of this public shame, maybe. <laughs> uh, again, though, this is... is Culturally, it's harder for us to understand, right? But the shame of running out of wine and having that party canceled would probably have followed their, those teenagers their whole lives, right? It'd be a lot worse than my belt falling off and tripping over a cord and somersaulting down and, and Kedrick filming it all and putting it on TikTok with some funny music. Nowadays, there, there's a new distraction every second, right? Back in that day, again... The shame and the embarrassment of that would have lasted a long time. Even more, though, than taking care of the shame, Jesus actually elevates the status of the groom in the eyes of the master of the banquet or the master of the feast by creating great-tasting wine. This, the, the master of the banquet, was in charge of the party, and there's no question that he would have made sure to compliment and highlight everything good about the party and the bride and the groom. Uh, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but... Jesus' first message to the world around him right here was basically this. He's the true master of the banquet. Jesus is the life of the party. Jesus came to bring celebration and joy. And verse 12, the very end of our text today, would seem to suggest that Jesus and his disciples and the family did indeed stay for the entire celebration. I want to go back and reread our passage to you again now that we've looked at some background but I, but I want you to participate a little bit differently this time uh, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and use your imagination a little bit to see if you can visualize the story in your head of course those those pictures in your head won't match the actual event but now that you have a little background a little more understanding of the story maybe you can engage a little bit deeper as we read God's word so close your eyes if you would on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom to him and said to him, everyone saves the good wine, pardon me, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You can open your eyes and elbow or pinch your neighbor or spouse if they're asleep. Uh, this now is where it starts to get really exciting, right? And now that the story is fresh in our minds, this is where we should all get out our gospel nerd hats. Oh, wait. Isn't that just what being a Christian is? That, that we should always be thankful and be excited when we talk about who and how each one of us has been rescued out of eternal life to death? So, so I want you to do that with me. Be a Christian. Let's talk about the gospel and where it is in this story. And it starts in the phrase, my hour has not yet come. These words might seem strange to you and me, but if you read the rest of John's gospel account, they become pretty clear. Jesus is not saying that this is a bad time. He's not saying I'm not ready yet to do this miracle and then giving in to his mother anyways. No, the hour, because he does this in other places, the hour that he's referring to is his crucifixion and his death. Mark 14, 41 reveals that hour when, it, when Jesus says this, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. This is leading up to his crucifixion. And so we learn from this that right from the very, very start of his public ministry, Jesus never forgot his purpose for coming to earth. He, he willingly came to earth as a humble child, he willingly was going to step forward to take the wrath of God for each one of us, for all of our sins. Jesus' purpose was that he came to pay the price that we can never pay ourselves. And when he did not miss that, that idea, that gospel everywhere in scripture and definitely not here in this story. Ultimately, Jesus in his response to his mother is saying this, Yes, I will solve this current shame problem. And I'm going to solve every shame problem. He says, yes, I will bring joy and celebration to this wedding right here today. And he says, and I will bring joy, celebration, everlasting. But I'm going to have to die to do it. 
Jesus' sacrifice, of course, his death on our behalf only works, though, if he's God. He can't just be a good person. He actually has to be fully God. And again, this miracle clearly demonstrates that too. On the surface, it might not seem that hard to turn water into wine because you and I are so used to seeing magicians use sleight of hand to change one thing into another. And we even seemingly change a liquid into something different when we add a concentrate. Right? But you need to understand a little chemistry. There's no such thing as wine powder or wine concentrate. It doesn't work. The only way, unless you're God, of course, that you can produce wine is to have someone actually till the soil and plant some vines. And then you need years of sun and that soil and water and carbon dioxide to grow those vines into mature plants. And then you need an expert along the way at pruning and fertilizing and taking care of them. And then you need another final growing season of all those things put together to produce grapes. And then it takes hours of lab labor to cut the grapes off and to harvest and juice and strain them. And, and then you gotta have just the right kind of container to put it in. And you need time for fermentation. But Jesus, right, who created all of those things I just listed, he demonstrates his power here as the capital C creator to make something out of nothing by instantly changing water into wine demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb of God. This something from nothing also illustrates the gospel message of 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Might be popping into some of your heads. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it's because of the gospel, because of what Jesus said, that you and I are changed from water into wine. We're changed from sinners into saints, from rebels against God's will to actually being adopted into his family as his children. Well, how else do we see the gospel here in this story? John says in verse 11 of chapter 2 that this is the first of Jesus' signs. Again, if you read through the rest of John's gospel, in Sunday school this morning with the high schoolers, we read through part of it. We went hunting for those signs, so you can ask some of the teenagers about that later. You'll find that John points out six more signs after this. There's a, a pastor and an author named Anthony Salvaggio, and he wrote this. I want to read it to you. He said, like the signs we see every day, the signs of John's gospel point beyond themselves to a greater reality. The signs of John's gospel are not the destination. They are directions to the greater truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. John wants us to see through the looking glass of these signs so that we may confess that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God. John himself, of course, says the same thing. He says what the purpose of his, of his book is in the second to last chapter, not the very last chapter. Uh, in verse 31, John says this, but these are written, talking about the signs, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, it's possible that you're here today and you have never said out loud that you believe by faith in the gospel, that you believe that Jesus is God himself. 
that Jesus came to earth in human form to pay the penalty for our sin, that he died on the cross, came back to life to conquer sin, to demonstrate his power. And if you haven't ever done that, that's really what we're here to do, to, to show this to you, to point you to Jesus and say, you can have life in his name. After hearing the story that we read today, just one of the signs, but that's enough. If you've never done that, you can start it right now in your seat and have an inside your head conversation with God and then come find somebody else in church and say it out loud for them. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If you're already following Jesus, then John chapter 1 verse 14 is for you. It says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We need to continue to see His glory, to develop a deeper, richer, more meaningful, more profound understanding of who Jesus is, of His glory. Well, I told you at the beginning that this sermon was going to be about two weddings. And why is that so important? Well, I think it's partly important because life is hard, it's difficult, it's full of embarrassments, and it's full of failures and struggle and trials and heartache and pain. And the only way any of us can make it through is obviously through the work of God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also think we make it through with hope of what's to come. So I want to read just a few verses for you that describe what is to come. And I hope after seeing the, some of the wedding analogies that these will, will resonate with you. Uh, in Revelation, it actually talks about that second wedding. This is describing what it's going to be like when we are married with Christ. They're together, and, and there's a banquet, there's a party. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Can you picture that day in your head? Psalm 1611 says these words, In your presence, speaking of God, when we're in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This morning, Miguel read us the whole chapter. I want to read just a part of that again. It says this in Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Now let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. One of my favorite verses, sections of scripture as a child too. John 14, later in this book, Jesus talking again says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. If you've never read the book, not just watched the movie of The Lord of the Rings, I would be happy to loan you one of my copies. It's book nerd time. I'm not going to loan you this one. This is an almost, I don't think it's a first printing, but it's pretty close. But I have a couple other copies. Uh, In that book, near the end of the story, spoiler alert, sorry if you've never read it, After the ring is destroyed through a lot of pain and suffering and sorrow, one of the characters who was there, a part of that, named Sam, Sam wakes up and he says these words to one of the other characters. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought, I was dead. And then Sam says this line, is everything sad going to come untrue? I've also recently been blessed by a song from Casting Crowns about the loss of a loved one. And these are the words they sing. The only scars in heaven, they won't belong to me and you. There'll be no such thing as broken and all the old will be made new. And the thought that makes me smile now, even as the tears fall down, is that the only scars in heaven are on the hands that hold you now. Uh, I told you it was book nerd time. I'm going to get real nerdy on you. I guess I'm not that nerdy because I love the comic book version of some of the classics. Uh, But a guy named Fyodor Dostoevsky, try and say that one, uh, he wrote in a a novel called The Brothers Karamazov these words. He said this. I'll, I'll put these ones up on the screen. Maybe? Nope, just a little bit of it. This is what he said. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atoning of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Do you believe that? That the end is so gloriously good, that the future banquet with Jesus will be so delicious, that that never-ending celebration with Jesus will be so amazing that no amount of difficulty Nothing here on earth is too much. Do we have that kind of hope? 
Well, let's, uh, let's wrap up today with four quick application questions. Uh, I have to credit my brother-in-law, Jamie, for the inspiration for a couple of these. He's preparing to speak at the wedding of our niece down in Arizona in September, and, and I love how he's going to use the story of Jesus at a wedding, at a wedding, and they're believers, so Jesus will be at that wedding too, really. Um, uh, first, first question for you today. Is Jesus an invited guest in your life? I want you to not forget from our story that Jesus was invited to this wedding. Right? He didn't force his way in. He didn't crash the party. Revelation 3.20 says this, Behold, or look, or here I am. This is Jesus talking in Revelation. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Jesus is talking in the context there to the church at Laodicea. He's talking to people that are already Christians. He can basically be talking to us. And the idea here is that we have to daily invite him into our lives. Right? Scripture's full of phrases like come and see, come and follow, because Jesus never forces himself on us. Jesus draws us to himself, and you and I have to respond willingly. We have to say, Jesus, I want you to be a part of my morning routine. I want you to be a part of my job. I want you to be a part of my marriage. I want you to be a part of the next conversation I have after church today. I want you to be a part of my vacation. I want you to be part of all of the events of my life. Because if we're willing to be honest, we all forget about them, right? Uh, during large portions of our daily life often. To, to my own shame, there's days when at the end of my day, I have to sorrowfully confess to the Lord, I, I did it on my own today. I, I didn't think about you during the stuff that happened to me today. And we need to invite him into our life. And of course, don't forget that we need to invite Jesus into the back rooms of our life, right? Not just the fun, big parts, not just Sunday morning when we're here together, but the places where we've run out of wine, our broken places, our shameful places, every part of our life. In fact, you might even find it helpful to think or act this out. I've been trying to put that into practice this week to actually, before anything I do, to invite Jesus to be a part of it, to say that out loud. Jesus, I want you to be a part of, and you fill in the blank, whatever it is that you're doing. Because really, we need to do that every time we do something, everywhere we do it, with everyone we do it. Right? It should be a normal part of life. Well, I know Ralph has told the story in the past of his mom that never went anywhere without praying. She, she essentially was doing what I'm talking about here. She invited Jesus into everything. Maybe, though, you're already in the habit of doing that. That's great. You need to take the next step of faith. Because looking at our story, did you see it there that it wasn't just Jesus that the family invited to the wedding? Who did they invite? His whole entourage, all of his disciples came with him, right? The family invited them all. And perhaps that's what you need to remember this morning. You need to go a little bit bigger. You need to maybe invite the rest of your church family into your life. Maybe you're just coming to church on Sunday and headed home. You got Jesus, he's in there, but you're not letting anybody else that's with Jesus in. Maybe it's God's word scripture. Oh, you love parts of it. You love to pick and choose, but you need to let the whole thing in. 
Maybe it's a messy outsider, somebody that's going to make trouble in your life more difficult. Maybe it's actually a ministry here at church that's going to eat up your time. The question for you today is, will you invite and open your life up to all that Jesus is? Question two, are you looking for solutions in the right place? Uh, I definitely do not want to elevate Mary in any way this morning. I have friends even here that come from a Catholic background, and you guys know better than the rest of us the dangers of that distortion. But I do want us to pause and just think about the fact that Mary had somebody living in her home for 30 years that had never sinned. Can you imagine that? If, if Mary asked Jesus a question, he would tell her the truth every time. If she asked for his advice, he would give perfect advice. Jesus never once acted selfishly towards his mother, towards his siblings, towards anybody in the family, towards anybody in his community. He, he's the man, right? And I really don't think that Mary went to Jesus expecting him to perform a miracle. This was his first one. He hadn't done it before. So no, Mary didn't go for that. Mary went simply because Jesus was wise and perfect and kind and loving like no one that had ever lived. Jesus was the right person to go to when something was wrong. Right? Mary didn't go to the groom or the father of the groom. She didn't even go to the master of the banquet. She went to, she didn't go to the bride or the mother or any of the other ladies to talk it out. She went to, so, so really, on your notes, this came out, can you scratch off place, if you have a pen there, and write in person instead? Are you looking for solutions in the right person? Mary did, but how about us? Maybe Google is your go-to in times of crisis or need. For fun this week, I just typed in how to, and I let Google, Google autofill it for me. It came up with some things like how to sleep, how to lose weight, how to help someone who's depressed, and quite appropriately, how to quit drinking. Um, don't you think Jesus has some solutions even to those four, let alone the other issues of life that are better than what Google serves up? Maybe, though, it's people you go to for solutions, a spouse, a friend, a parent. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with going to other people seeking out counsel. But we all need to be a little more like Mary and ultimately go to Jesus for the solutions to life, big or small. Number three, are you doing whatever Jesus tells you to do? Almost every translation I looked at quotes Mary as saying, do whatever he tells you. We read this in Sunday school, and every single one of the kids had that translation. Uh, it would do Pastor Dave, our former pastor. His heart would, he'd be a little worried because in his favorite version of the Bible, the New King James Version that we used to use a lot, this is what it says. And I love this way of putting it. Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, we're not going to spend long on this question because Rob so beautifully preached about obeying Jesus' commandments last week, right? Rob, and Rob even summarized it in his own message. He said almost these same words that Mary is saying, and they're true. Whatever God says to you, do it. That obviously starts with whatever he said in his word. Right? In this book, do it. But, but of course, it also applies to the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
How many times have you actually felt the urge to do something meaningful for the Lord, but you hold back? Right? Uh, it's going to cost me too much money, too much time, it's too much effort. And Mary says here, no, do it. Lastly, are you pouring out your wine? Wine. Uh, I originally titled the slide, Are You Experiencing Abundant Joy? Uh, and maybe because I was a little afraid of another wine connection, but uh, maybe because I, I really, the, the, I wanted to highlight the celebratory nature of this wedding and of Jesus himself. Um, so maybe we can add here again in your notes the carrot, the upside down V, and say, are you joyfully pouring out your wine? Sorry, I'm pointing up there because I'm looking at that screen. Are you joyfully pouring out your wine? Carrot spelled differently than the rabbit eating food, right? Uh, Rabbit, rabbit, never mind, you'll figure that one out. Uh, so uh, what do I mean? What does this question mean? Are you pouring out your wine? In this story, of course, Jesus transforms common water into very uncommon wine. And he does the same thing in our lives. Right? Jesus takes our brokenness and he heals it and he turns it into something beautiful and useful. That, that's really the wine that I'm talking about in this question. But I want you to remember that through the story, the wine wasn't hoarded, was it? No, it was used as part of an entire community-wide celebration. So really the question is, are you pouring out, are you giving yourself to other people? Are you following God's commandment to love others by giving yourself away to them joyfully in acts of service? using all that he's healed and changed in you, all of that to serve other people in our church and in your family when you go home today and in our community. Two of really the most painful things in my life and my wife Melanie's life was her sexual abuse as a young girl. And my years of addiction to pornography as a young man and yet God turned those horrible things into wine. And some of our greatest joys as a couple have been us actually pouring into other young men and young women who have lived the same hurt and pain. And that's what I'm asking you today. Will you consider doing the same with whatever God has turned into wine in your life? And if you have some things that aren't wine, Come to Jesus. So we're pointing out today. He can do that. He can turn those hurt, broken things into something beautiful. Of course, the ultimate example of pouring out wine is Jesus himself. Last week, we took communion together, and we drank some wine right, that represents the life-giving blood that Jesus spilt on the cross. Jesus joyfully poured out his life and he did it to the point of death. So let's follow his example. Let's obey his commands. Let's be like him and pour out our lives for things that have eternal merit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good. And yet we are so easily distracted by the things of this world that 
are good too, Lord, oftentimes. Um, sadly, we're distracted by things that aren't so good. Satan is a master deceiver, and he loves to wrap things up and make them look good. Father, give us the strength, give us the faith, help us to believe like your disciples believe that you are who you said you are. You are God himself. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of surrendering, surrendering our entire lives to. Father, again, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never done that, they've never trusted you to be in charge of their life, that they would do that. Father, I pray for each one of us that we would take the word that you spoke through John uh, and you would strengthen and encourage us and help us to believe to a greater degree. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.